listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. The Adventure of a Lifetime Two best mates riding side by side in the wild landscape of Mongolia. When Jess and Nat entered the world's toughest horse race, they knew it would be hard. Finishing the race itself was as big a deal as winning. But these women were from the Northern Territory. They'd spent their lives working in rugged conditions in remote areas. Surely, they'd be fine. In this episode, they share how no amount of planning can truly prepare anyone for the Mongol Derby. The Mongol Derby is the world's longest and toughest horse endurance race. It's a thousand kilometers over 10 days. It's self-navigated. So it basically relies on you taking your, you've got your GPS, you've got your maps, and then it's you, your horse and whoever you are lucky enough or unlucky enough to get stuck riding with. Um, and you'll go from horse station to horse station. They're 40 k's apart as the crows flies. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's probably the, the most, Physically and mentally and emotionally, probably more emotionally tough than physically, I would say, for me. And, yeah, I think, you know, Jess and I are a really good example of you you plan in your mind and you train and you, you know, you've got it sort of worked out in terms of what you're going to do if things go wrong and how it's going to go and the derby just just strips all of that away and it you know there are a thousand different stories in that race and every rider will have a different story for you on every single day so it's yeah it's it's like nothing else and even no matter how much you you read about it watch it prepare for it I still think that there's so much about that race that you can never actually experience or understand until you've been there in that moment and like Jess said there's just there's unreal highs and there are extreme lows and you don't get a chance to process what any of that looks like until you're at the other end. And I think even now, sort of three months out, there's still so much to process and go through. So which one of you nutbags had the idea to go on this epic horse race first? I think it was it was a bit of a joint thing. We were watching the 2019 race, both of us unbeknownst to each other, and just so happened to be like text message or whatever while oh, you're watching that race and yeah oh thinking about doing it some stage maybe i don't know whether it's a smart idea or not but and then natalie was like oh well i sort of had the same thought like well let's do it now i know from your last episode you've done an insane amount of equestrian pursuits so from um, mounted games, show jumping, um, just riding out in stock camp, camp drafting, all that kind of stuff. What about you, Nat? You're kind of a wild card on the podcast at the moment. Were <laughs> you a horse mad as well? Yeah, so Jess and I actually met through Mounted Games. So Jess's mum used to coach us and um, Jess used to ride for Catherine Horse and Pony Club. I used to ride for Darwin Horse and Pony Club. And, you know, we'd um, meet and ride at Pony Club, I don't know, since we were maybe, what, seven, eight, nine 
Uh, yeah, yeah, little. Anyway, <laughs> Too long ago. Yeah, you know, back in the days of Pony Club camp, camps where like Catherine and Nunamar and Darwin and Barrymore would all come together and you'd converge and you'd camp at Pony Club and it was just the best weekend ever. Um, and, and yeah, so, so similar to Jess, like fairly diverse riding background, um, Pony Club, mounted games, show jumping, bit of polo cross, you know, sort of anything, anywhere there's a horse, you'll generally sort of find me floating around somewhere. <laughs> And so it's one thing to kind of text each other and be like, oh, yeah, that'd be fun to have a go at that. But when did it actually come to crunch time where you had to commit to doing the derby? When they decided that we had to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we um, we applied and then and they have an interview process. So you, you apply online and you, you know, pop in your application about your writing history and why you want to do it and, you know, your, your motivations behind it and then you have some phone interviews and then, they go through and, and decide whether or not, you know, they, they, if they have any sort of doubt about your writing experience or, um, ability, they'll often either ask for references or for you to send photos and videos and stuff. And then once Jess and I both got through, and obviously for us at that stage, it was, we didn't know if we would get into the same year together. So they only accept around 40 to 44 riders from across the world. So if there was a big influx, there was a chance that we might have been pushed into two separate years or different races. So, I think, like, for me, the fact that, you know, we both got in the same year, that was kind of like, yep, okay, cool, it's a sign, let's do it and and let's make it happen and, yeah. So you watched the 2019 race. Were you hoping to go over in 2020? Is that is the process for, watch it, like, apply that year and hopefully get in the next or? The, the, when we applied, the 2020 race was already full. So we already knew that we were pushed into 2021. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, so that was 2019 when you applied, though, hoping to ride in 2021. We all know what happened in 2020. So, but I guess by last year, COVID had kind of calmed down a bit, but you obviously still weren't able to go. No, there was still a few uncertainties with, um, like with Mongolia and how they were treating COVID. And, um, it was looking like we'd probably end up having to be away for like six to eight weeks. And I've got a family. Natalie's got her own business. Um, it just was never going to work. So we had opted to go into the, they, they gave everyone the opportunity to um, decide, basically, and everyone pretty well said to move into the 2022. How far out from the 2021 planned event was that call made? Probably, I think, oh, I can't remember exactly. I reckon I, it, was around, it was either just before mid-year or Yeah, like maybe close. like February, Mar- maybe March, April or something around yeah. there. So, and the race is in July, July, July August. 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 Yeah. Okay, so a couple months out. Yeah. Um. So at that stage, before that decision was made to postpone the race to the following year, how long had you guys been training for that race? Oh, that was it, because there had been so much uncertainty around 2020. I think, and they had had conversations about it being moved for us. Like, I don't think it was a real. Like we were talking about it, but definitely wasn't like firm in place and international flights were still not allowed. Mongolia had bubonic plague at that stage. Like there was just so many things that, you know, weren't looking like it was going to happen. Um, so I think once we had that confirmation about it being July or August, then we both selected August. Um, that was probably, I'd say 12 months out. Um, and that was, I think when training sort of really started to get, you know, pretty serious. So. If by some chance last year they hadn't pushed back the race to this year and you'd had to go in 2021, would you have had enough training, do you think? Or you can't, you're kind of hedging your bets that it was going to end up being in 2022. Yeah, yeah. I think we were pretty <laughs> confident that it was going to be 2022. So, um, like we couldn't get, like I said, we couldn't get international flights. Countries weren't issuing visas. Like we just, 
It was sort it's of got to be a hard call to make, like because if it had gone the other way, you're like, oh crap, now I'm going to really get fit. But you also don't want to be kind of flogging yourself training if it's because I know I don't know how far in advance you need to really train, and it's probably different training a year out than two does. years out. <laughs> no, I, I think anyway as well. Like we, like you know, Jess has got a, uh, an outdoors job. Like she's working ten hours a day anyway. Um, like I was riding pretty consistently at the gym pretty consistently. So it was just kind of upping that. It's not like we were, you know, spending 12 hours on a couch and then needing to really ramp up to where we were. So I think for both of us, we were kind of reasonably confident in what that looked like. For me, a big part of the training was injury management. Like I had a lot of old injuries that I didn't want to flare up or be something that just, you know, made it impossible for me to ride. And I think, you know, in hindsight, like I physically, I held up better than I thought I was going to. Um, like I was sore, don't get me wrong, but I think you almost get into this routine of like it, the during the race, you, you're in such a routine around, there's nothing else, there's no distractions, there's no time to think about pain, you know, by the time you get into a horse station at night and then you, you vet check, you put your horse away, you grab a feed, you find the most, you know, the least uncomfortable spot on a piece of carpet in a gur and then you unpack your saddlebag, you go to sleep, you wake up, you do it all again, you, you know, you pack your saddlebag, you you fill your water bottle, you, you take your painkillers and your anti-inflammatories, you try eat something and then you go pick your horse. Like there's no real time to even sit around and think, oh, I'm sore today or, you know, because you're thinking about how am I going to get to the next station, what horse am I going to pick, who am I riding with today, um, yeah. So where does training for something like this begin? Where did you think to start? I think we were just trying to do as much riding as we could. I sort of got into a little bit of a rut uh, probably around mid-year last year thinking this is not working, whatever I was doing. And I talked to one of the ladies that's one of the event organisers in the UK and and she does a lot of training for derby riders over there. And after I spoke to her, I was like, oh, that's right, I don't have to do as much as what I thought. But um, basically she said a lot of it, like, yes, you need to be physically fit and you need to be riding. She said the biggest thing is getting time in the saddle and then being mentally fit for it. How do you work on your mental fitness? I don't think you can, to be honest. Like you can be as prepared as you, – you can try to be as prepared as you can be. I think what set us – you know, well was that we we did put a lot of effort into trialing and testing our gear. You know, so it, there was there was a quiet confidence around you know knowing what was going to rub, what wasn't. Have you got the right knickers? Is that the right sports bra? You know, do these jods work for you? Don't they? Does your backpack rub here? Um, we were really fortunate. We put out a um a bit of a call for uh, to see if any endurance riders would uh, let us ride with them on an endurance race down south. And they said, look, we're happy to travel. We're doing the derby. Uh, neither of us are endurance riders. Like, you know, both ridden all our lives but haven't done those sorts of distances in that, you know, and just so that we could get a better appreciation, mostly around testing our gear, seeing, you know, what hurt, what didn't, what was waterproof, what wasn't. Um, and also, you know, trying to get an idea of, of time over distance as well, like that consistency. And so we were really fortunate um, that Peter Toft from Toft Endurance uh, ended up shooting us back an email about four days before Easter, was it? And he was like, if you can get here this weekend, I've got two horses for you. Anyway, and so I rang Jess and I was like, we've got to go to Queensland this weekend. We've got an endurance race. Jess is like, no, I don't reckon I can make it. And I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. 
And I wrote back and I was like, please come on. I don't want to go by myself. Please come with me. It'll be great. Anyway, and so we ended up going and we had – um it was unreal. There was another uh, lady, Sarah, who rode on the same race as us and she was actually – she's an endurance rider and so she helped us out, you know, with a tent and um, that was a real – that was unreal. So we did end up doing two 40K rides that weekend in Inglewood, was it? No, that's a lie. Somewhere in Queensland anyway. It started with I. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um Imble. Imble. There you go. Um, and, and that was, you know, and so Peter and his wife Penny, like they, they were just unreal, like really took us under their wing, like didn't know us from a bar or soap, offered us horses, gear, everything, like camped at their camp, um, helped us out with our, you know, insurances. And we ended up doing a second ride with them, which was 280Ks. And, you know, Peter was really, Peter and Penny, they were, they were just so supportive of it. They're like, you know, usually it takes riders, you know, a year or two years to get up to, to 280K rides. You guys have done one. 40k ride each weekend and now you've done come and done two 80k rides you know in the same weekend and um that that wasn't that was such a a confidence boost for both of us I think but it also really made us recognize that my my ankles were extremely sore after those two 80ks like I didn't I was so sore I could barely walk on them I got headbutt by a horse that was unreal and yeah, like just, I think we, we tried to be as prepared as we could be for all, all of the different elements of what that race would bring. Um, and that was, you know, probably some of the mental fitness was in thinking, okay, well, at least we're kind of prepared. Like we went through two different, three or four different types of jackets, different types of jods, different types of helmets, you know, backpacks. Uh, yeah. You name it, we tried it. <laughs> well, I, I have to ask, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people listening with their ears wide open right now, perked up. What is the best undies to ride in? Depends on the person. <laughs> I, I tried bulk undies. <laughs> Couldn't find anything. I was struggling. Um, but I ended up going with like a mid-thigh um, running short type Undies, yeah, um, and they worked great because at least at the end of the day, I could jerk me jotties off and sit around me jocks. There you go. What about you, Nat? So I went for I forget the brand name now. What are the, do you remember what they were called? Those uh, like a bike pant as well, but they were for um, endurance riders. So and yeah, similar to Jess, they were sort of lightweight. And if you got because you know five kilo, if you're only allowed to take five kilos of gear with you from from whatever you start with, your five kilos is it for the whole race, um, and that. It's unreal how quickly five kilos is actually not very much. And I think, you know, one of the things I would say to anyone who is going on the derby, half the shit you think you need, you actually don't. The things you should not forfeit are your sleeping mat, which Jess and I both like confidently forfeited on at the side. We're like, no, nah, no, nah, we'll be fine. We don't need that. You do need that. Sleeping mat is definitely what you need. Um, and then, you know, like in terms of what you can take, like we can only take, I think we only end up taking two pairs of jocks, two pairs of socks. As it was, like, I was, like, on a 100% strike rate of losing things. I left my underwear drying in the first girl on the first night, like, my second pair. I was, like, yeah, I'll just wash one, wear one. Didn't, left it hanging in the rafters. Night two, left my second pair of socks. So, night three, I was, like, down to one pair of socks, one pair of jocks. I had to scab, uh, like, socks from the vet because mine was saturated. So, yeah, it was just, I don't know. I was just honestly there to make it hard for myself, I reckon. <laughs> so it's a thousand kilometer horse race. How many days is it supposed to go over and how many kilometers are you supposed to do roughly per day? They, they give you 10 days to complete it. Um, so, and they, like thousand kilometers, that's as the crow flies. So 
it's not actually a thousand kilometers. I rode 1250. There was other people that rode closer to 1500, uh, depending on which route you took. And because it is going through like mountainous country, um, so you're going to take in the ups and the downs and going around stuff that probably don't need to go around. So I did that once. Um, but there's all that sort of stuff to take into account. Um, but yeah, so we were sort of, I pretty well, I finished on day 10 in at 10 o'clock in the morning. So, um, around that 120 a day is sort of how we averaged it, I suppose. Was that 80k endurance ride the longest kind of stretch of riding you'd done before the derby? Yeah, for me it was, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And in, in the time frame too, like we, we rode off at 3 a.m. and we were done by, 12 noon, I think. Yeah. So, but really different country too. Like that was really, really hilly and um, quite sandy in some patches. So, yeah, like different country and also at a different at a different pace too. Yeah. Yeah. But that's still only like, is it so 80 over 122 thirds of the distance though? So, the longest you'd done before wasn't like kind of a full day of the derby. So, yeah. and if you were, like you said before, Nat, you were so sore you couldn't walk at the end of 80Ks. I shudder to think what you would have been like at the end of a 120k day. Yeah, I was great after my cortisone injections. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should have done a little bit more injury management. One of my ankles blew out. Well, I'd actually in June this year, I rolled it and didn't have any time to get off it to actually be able to fix it properly. So uh, it blew out bad and both my knees went. Oh my gosh. What do you, what do you do? Like, I know there's a, I know you mentioned at the very beginning, there's medics there and I know there's vets that do vet checks on the horses at each station, but is there like human vets that do human checks at each station to make sure you're okay to keep going if you haven't had a fall or had something dramatic happen? Yeah. Uh, the medics were great. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. I a look on your face and I'm like, what is the story? There's a story for the end. Yeah, I, I ended up getting a, um, a an injection into my leg of anti-inflammatories there once. I thought about doing it again, but I sort of just by that stage, I was just like, bugger it, I'll just battle on, I'll be right. Um, come morning time, be fine, get about, oh, it was really only about the last 20 or 30 Ks of the day that I struggled with, but by the time we got in, we were right. Go to sleep, get up, go do it again. So, I guess let's go from your training to Mongolia. What was it, I guess, you know, from the flight to arriving, when you arrived there, like what happens? What were you thinking? I mean, it sounds like you packed incredibly light, so that would have been great. sounds like it was like hand luggage only, you know? Well, yeah, yeah, they did say that that, um, the Mongolia airport is renowned for losing things. So, anything that you want that you need to take on that race, take with you as hand luggage. Um, so we did, like, we packed our hand luggage and, um, and then had our, our other big bags with, with the other stuff in it. And that was, um, yeah, like that, that was, that was no stress. We stayed, like, you get picked up from the airport or we, did we get picked up? No, we had a taxi. No, we yeah. Got, yeah. We got picked up from the air. Like, it was all pretty smooth. Like, by the time we got picked up from the airport, went to the hotel where the other riders were staying. You had a couple of days in Mongolia to sort of have a look around and, you know, see some sights and those sorts of things. Some riders opted to go out to, um, you know, see the Przowski horses and that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, you'll sort of you have your pre-race training and then you – or your pre-race meet and then you get on a bus and they take you 
eight hours out to the middle of nowhere and that's your, your pre-race camp and that sort of sets you up with a bit of a false sense of what, what the 10 days might be like because you've got stretches and fluffy beds and rooms that, you know, your girls that have little potbelly stoves in them and there's food and alcohol and a bar and there's dancing and there's all these sorts of things that don't exist on the race. So it's like a nice start and you sort of – you almost like you're captivated by the beauty of Mongolia when you're at the start camp because – you know, you get there and there's these 20 girls set up in this mountain range and, you know, when the sun sets and rises over them, it is like storybook stuff in terms of, you know, the shadows that it casts, the lights that are there. You see wild horses running across the plain and these herders, you know, chasing them and it's like it's so postcard perfect and then the day the race starts, it's just like a shutter comes down and then everything changes. (laughs) What is a go? Is that, I guess, like their version of a hut or is it a stone building? Like- yeah, so it's a hut. So they're, they're, it's entirely movable. Um, so I think that's probably one of the biggest things about the Mongolian culture is they're so nomadic and in a way that kind of plays on your mind too because it's so movable. Like there, there's nothing, you know, that they, they move to where the animals graze, to where there's feed, to, you know, if they need to be close to town for, for medical reasons or, or what else, but they can quite literally pick up a camp and move, and then there's nothing there other than some vodka bottles. Yeah. <laughs> vodka bottles. <laughs> so when you, on that first day, you get given your horses and you're like, good luck, off you go, what's the plan? Like does everyone, does all 44, 45 riders set off together or is it kind of like staged? I know, like you mentioned before, you kind of had your riding buddies and you'd get to camps, uh, horse stations together at certain times. Does that mean it was sort of staggered or? No, so like. Natalie and I had planned to ride together. That was a solid plan, we thought. But when we start at the start line, everyone starts together and it can generally get fairly hectic on the start line. Obviously, 40, 45 riders, there was 46 in our race, um, all lined up together. You know, they count it down and they're like, right, oh, send it. And uh, we thought, well, we'll be smart about this. We'll get right back. And so we were, I don't know, have like 40 metres back maybe. Way up yeah. the back behind everyone. So thought it should be right. We just stand back here and, and uh, poke off behind everyone and then catch up. Be fine. When I, when I got my horse, the, the main herder walked past me and he said, it, it's very fast. Okay. I don't know. No worries. Whatever. Natalie knew nothing about hers. And yeah. as soon as the flag went down, uh, Natalie's horse went from – 40 metres back to the front within about 3.5 seconds. It was horrifying. It was like, yeah, honestly, it was worse 3.5 seconds of my life. I was like, this is not my plan. I hate this horse. I hate this race. It was just, it, it was just, it's one of those, it was honestly one of those moments where I was like, this is not my plan. Sorry, horse, can you just hold your horses right now? And and because in that minute we were separated. And like Jess said, it is chaos at that start line. And, you know, it, it's chaos not only because you've got 46 riders there that are willing, that are ready to take off and the horses are sort of geeing up and, and running around, but it's also chaos because of the spectacle that is created from the start line. You know, like it streams lives, you've got cameras everywhere, you've got drones, you've got people, you've got flags, you've got this sort of very theatrical countdown, like 10, 9, Eight, so you know the anxiety is building, and then, and like I said, we were just like, yeah, cool, we're back here, out of the thick of it. You know, this is this is a good plan, step one. And my horse, like I've never ridden anything that quick. It just teleported, hey, honestly. 
Anyway, and so Jess like catches up. I'm like trying to, I'm like, I don't want to lose my friend. I can't lose my friend. This is like, we're two minutes into this race. Jesus Christ, I got 10 days to go. Anyway, and then Jess come up behind me and she's like, stop pulling, I'm here. And I'm like, right, okay. So then we sort of took off. It was a bit more like, stop pulling on the bastard, you're going to wear yourself out. Yeah, <laughs> and I was exhausted, 3.5 minutes in. Right. <laughs> Um, but also like, cause we, yeah, where we were planning that first route and where to go, they're like, yeah, just through that fence. And anyway, like I'd packed and unpacked and I was sort of in a bit of a fluster about what I was packing or unpacking or not packing. And then they're like, yeah, yeah, just go through that first gate. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like not really listening, trying to think about my 5k. So when this horse took off, I was like, I'm not at all confident where that first gate is. I don't remember that gate. I don't know where that gate is. And so I was like, I'm at the front of the pack here. Like, and cause this horse was going so quick. I was like, if I miss that gate. I am in a world of trouble. So, but anyway, it, it was right. We went through and it was sort of pretty self-explanatory when we got there. But I think it's just, it was that, that moment of like everything going wrong from the start. And you're just like, Jesus Christ, this is not my plan. <laughs> so you said the, the race is self-navigated. What does that actually mean? Like, do you have a little GPS or do you get given a mud map? How many different, how many alternative ways are there to get from start to finish? Plenty. Plenty of alternative ways. But the quickest <laughs> in the end, well, once we worked it out, the quickest yeah. was literally the direct route. Yeah. So you put put in your next horse station in your GPS and follow the pink line. Yeah. As closely as you could. It was quicker. And so you guys got split up though. How did you get split up? Yeah, so we got split up at the very first horse station. So I think day one of the race was probably the hardest day for me. We... Uh, so we got to the first horse station, um, and yeah, and my horse had just cooked itself. Like, it, you know, it was knackered coming in. So I got off, I walked like four kilometers into that last, into the first station. Anyway, and I came in and my horse was at 62. Um, so you've got half an hour to bring their heartbeat down 56 beats per minute. Um, so we went in, saw the vet check. My horse came in at 62. Jess come in, uh, no, you, you came in just before me, didn't you? With the vet yeah, check. In 74. Yeah. And the fella behind me came in at 80. So me and Jess look at each other and I was like, what were you? She's like 74. What were you? They were 62. Anyway, so at that moment, I'm like, yeah, cool. All right. I've only got to come down to 56. Uh, half an hour. You're all right. So you go, you, you wash them down a little bit with the cool water or whatever. And I said to Jess, I was like, right. As soon as this horse gets 56, I'll fill up our bags. So we both put our bags down. I was like, I'll fill up our bags. I'll get water and we'll go. Anyway. And then so 15 minutes in, I went for a recheck because I thought, oh, if it's come down, I'll put it away. And his heart rate has gone up to 64. Anyway, so I'm looking at Jess and Jess is like, we're both walking our horses out, you know, trying to get him to come down. Anyway, and then so we both check again at half an hour. Uh, Jess's horse had come down 56 and my horse's heartbeat was still at 64. Uh, the fellow behind me who came in at 80, his horse had come down 56 too. So in that moment, two and a half hours into the, the first day of the race, um, yeah, we were, I was whacked with a two hour vet penalty. Um, which meant that, yeah, I had to say goodbye to Jess. Um, and the silence that descended on that horse station when 46 riders leave and the most of the medics leave and most of the vets leave because they're off to go follow the race and the cameramen are gone. And it just, it descends into absolute silence and loneliness and everything about how I thought this, race was going to be you know the best experience of my life with one of my oldest mates in that moment there everything changed like I was just so alone 
Sounds so sad. I feel yeah. like you're about to cry. Like it sounds really sad. Yeah, it was. It, and I think day to day we all for the most part exist with a real sphere of control over our day and even if things don't quite go to plan, you know, there's generally a, an option A, B, C or D that's quite closely followed by, oh, okay, well, that didn't quite work out but I can do this or, you know, we, we sort of we do have so much more control over what our day-to-day looks like even from big decisions to small decisions when you're there and you have a plan and then that plan changes you don't there's there's not an option b there's not anything you can do to make it change you you know i'm in pr i can generally talk my way through where i need to get to and then an outcome that i want to achieve like, there's no PRing my way out of anything there and you know it was just the the lack of control in that moment and the loneliness and the stillness and the vastness of mongolia were, is just it's so hard to describe, eh? Like there's there's, yeah. there's a real nothingness about that place in a way that in, in the same sense where they're, where it's incredible and it's like nothing you've ever seen, it also has a real vastness to it. I guess if if something's out of your control in any environment, like that's tough enough to handle. But like you said, you're in Mongolia, you're away from home, you don't speak the language, you've just lost like your one friend and like there's nothing else you can kind of – like you don't have any of those other comforts to kind of balance out the situation. Like it's all just. Yeah. And, and even, so there were two other people with vet penalties. Oh, I think, no, nah, it might have been three or four other people with vet penalties, but because we came in at a different time, you get different penalties for different things. And if they came in earlier, they finish theirs earlier or sooner or whatever. And then the, the two girls that I rode out with were two girls that I hadn't even spoken a word to at start camp. So, you know, that was another element. It's not like they were people that I'd even had a chat to over the last three or four days. So they were strangers and yeah and it's sort of two hours takes a really long time when you're waiting for horses and you know you also then see your options diminishing too because then you've gone from a, a choice of 40 horses or 50 horses at a line to five horses and and of those five horses two you wouldn't touch one's a stallion that's herd bound and you know the last two have like physical prowess of a beach ball and you know you're like oh jesus christ it's gonna take you seven hours to get to the next station and it did took us five and a half hours to get to the next station on on those two horses so it's yeah and you know yeah it's it's just one of those things where you literally just have to deal with what you've got then and there so do you change horses every horse station yep Okay, so it's just you were going to get on a new horse anyway, but until yep. the the previous horse had had its heart rate come down, you weren't allowed to. Correct. Yep. Wow. I guess mm. I guess that must be some kind of incentive for people not to, I guess, to flog their horses and kind of wear them out. But yeah. like you're saying, some I guess some element of that is out of your control if your horse is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and actually, like it was, it was just one of those things. Like my horse came in out of those three horse examples. My horse came in the lowest heartbeat, and its its heart rate went up. By two beats, and um, Jess and that other fella, he they both came down. You know, and so that night, I guess, do you keep riding until whatever? I guess, do you figure out what station you get to, and kind of figure out the time of day and whether or not you can make it to another station, or you pull up at there for the night. But also, I guess, so this race, you can go many different routes. So that's also how. Because I'm thinking, like, could you have caught up to Jess that night, or was it that you know Jess might have taken a different route and ended up at a different horse station or a different camp or? Yeah, I think, like, in, you know, that was definitely the goal. Like, you know, I think we were like, yep, I'll catch you the next one. You ride on, like, you know, it's just there's so – like I said, it's just such a race of unknowns. I think, um, you know, there was definitely a big part of me that thought this is probably – and I think that's why I was so sad that thought I'm never going to see Jess again on this race. 
And that's because of everything that I'd read on the race in terms of like other people's experience. I'd said, you know, it it is so extremely rare that you'll ever ride with the same person again. And that's people that, you know, from the start to different races. So I think there was that overarching kind of dominant emotion in me that was like, not only am I saying goodbye now, but I don't think I'm, you know, I might, the very real reality of not seeing you again for 10 days is, is there. So, and yeah, and, and we didn't, we, we caught up at Horse station, station 17. Yeah. Which was when I was sick. And so that's when I got pulled from the race. I mm. guess. All right. Well, we'll get there soon enough, I yeah. guess. Um, Jess, what was it like for you having to ride off and leave Nat behind? It or were you just like, see ya? <laughs> No, <laughs> it was it was hard. It was definitely very hard. Um, I said to Natalie, "Look, if you really want me to stay, I'll stay. Can't say I'm not going to whinge like a bitch if I stay." But you know, and she's like, "No, you need to keep going." I was like, "Right, I know." So saddle up and rode out of there like a bat out of hell. Um, there was oh, that's when I first started riding with the two Kiwi followers. Um, and yeah, we we just hooked in and. And started making ground, and so we just kept talking in, and I still had it in my mind. I was like, Natalie will catch up, Natalie will catch up, but we got to Horse Station 2, um, and we'd caught up with uh, Will, the Aussie follower, and he had a really slow horse, but we weren't far out, so it was we were all sort of walking in by that stage anyway, and so we all, us four left out together, and I think at from Horse Station 2 to 3, there was a lot of people that, decided to go around a hill to a marked uh, river crossing, which turns out you didn't actually need to do. So we went straight over the hill and we ended up overtaking a few people in doing that, but we didn't have enough time. I think we were seven k's out from Horse Station 3, so we didn't have enough time to get there. might have been 15 k's, can't remember. But um, obviously didn't have enough time to get there by then riding, so we found a, a nomad family there that would take us in and there happened to be six riders they pulled up together and yeah, they happily took us in and gave us some Mongolian alcohol and were very um, accommodating. So, yeah. How random for them, although I guess this probably perhaps ha- happens to them each year. If Is the derby held in the same area or is it the same start and finish points, do you think? No, they change the route every year. Mm. Um, and so even, like, I mean, the, the route was the same from the July race to the August race this year, but they'd changed the direction. So we started where they finished. And yeah, okay. So that way no one can be like, oh, make sure you go from here to here. And yeah. yeah, but how bizarre for these people just to be living in their little, gir- do you say it was a girl? Yeah. And their little girls just, you know, in the middle of nowhere, next minute there's just all these like, what would have happened if you didn't find a family in a girl? Like you just lay on the ground somewhere, anywhere? Yeah, basically. What do you do for food? Oh, I, most people were sort of carrying something, whether it was protein bars or jerky. Or, I mean, you'd get through. Yeah. But um, basically the, the, the worst thing is if you don't find somewhere to stay and somewhere to sort of house your horses, whether it be on a ho- horse line, so just put two posts up and a bit of string rope b- between them um, and tie them to it, or they have little pens and you put them in there and hobble them. If you're just out the flat by yourself or even if it's a couple of years, you've only got the choice of hobbling them. You can tie your horses together. That sort of helps as well, but you, you're more likely to lose them overnight. So you're better off trying to stay with a family or getting to a horse station. Was there anyone on your race that lost their horse overnight? Plenty. Like, yeah. So what, what happens then? Do they have to like double dinky with someone or walk to the next horse station? Well, yeah, they either, well, they need to let the, the, 
headquarters know that they've lost their horse so that somebody can come and find it because that's they, generally they've got most of their gear on the horse um, if it's saddled. Otherwise, yeah, walk to the next horse station, take the penalty for losing your horse. Um, Cry. Or, or <laughs> wait for somebody to catch it. I never actually lost a horse, so yeah, can't tell you. Oh, my god! Mind you, though, I did chase one for someone else that lost their horse. It <laughs> sounds quite a like while. a messed up version of Jumanji or something, <laughs> hey, with all these penalties. Like. No, there are so many penalties for everything. Um, in saying that, though, that some of that – the the sleeping out was actually pretty unreal. Like I think on it was night two, we slept out and we got to the horse station and we had an hour and a half before we needed to be off. So and we asked the, um, like we asked the the translators there to ask the families if there was water and somewhere that we'd be able to stay with the horses. And then they said, "Yep, there's water. Yes, there's families you'll be able to stay with. Like you'll be right. Sort of there's plenty enough people between here and seven p.m. for you guys to find someone." Anyway, we went out and it had been a particularly dry few weeks. So there, all of the water spots that they thought would have had water in them didn't. Um, and the families that were in our one and a half hour sort of radius before nightfall, uh, were gone. So all of the girls were locked up and we, we couldn't find anyone. We couldn't find any water. Uh, you know, there was not, not even a scrap of water looking like it was anywhere on the horizon to walk to. Um, so we ended up finding this like abandoned sheep shed and fortunately like it was kind of big enough like it was gross like it was just covered in shit and bugs and bats and everything you can imagine but anyway it was the best option out of nothing and so we ended up parking the horses up in they had like a a half the sheep shed area was sort of these pens and so we ended up there was three of us there myself maria from sweden and um meredith from uh the uk and so we end up putting our horses into the pen and just like texting or like messaging in through the GPS that, you know, we were safe, that we'd put the horses here, but that there wasn't water and that there wasn't um, any people. And because we'd asked before we left that station, you know, is there, is there someone we can stay with and is there water? Because horse welfare is the biggest thing for these guys. And so you can't have your horses without water for that long. Um, but there was plenty of grass around. So we'd given the horses a, a really good green pig. So the vet came and checked on us, checked the horse's heart rate. They actually brought us water for that night. But that night sleeping in that shed was probably one of my favorite nights of the derby. Actually, Why? I think, I don't know. There was just something. I don't know. I, I can't actually tell you why. Like, I think it was, it was really, it was fun. It was peaceful. It was quiet. Um, there was none of the creature comforts around. I guess there was kind of the humorous element of like, oh, here we go, you know, like when it started raining, cause obviously they're all thatched, the little sheep things and they're thatched with hay and animal feces. And then so it starts raining and then you're like, oh, yeah, it's not too bad. Then you realise that the drops of rain are, like, black. And you're like, <laughs> oh, this is gross in my one pair of clothes. Um, you know, so, but I don't know, it was just uh, the horses were there and it was great because the horses didn't run away, so that was fab. Um, and, you know, we made good time on that day because obviously we were um, at the back of the pack by that stage. Um, so getting ahead an hour and a half that day meant that our next leg was not, you know, it was pretty easy and pretty good. So, yeah, it was, yeah, it was just, it was a really, it was a great night under, you know, when you put it on paper, you're like, that sounds awful. Um, but it wasn't, it was awesome. So 
So if you don't have to stay at a horse camp each night, if you can pull up somewhere between oh, – sorry, horse stations, if you can pull up anywhere in between, how do the race organisers know when you leave the next day that you're leaving on time, that you're not breaking any rules, or how do they even know where you are that night to say to bring you water and do the vet checks on your horses? Like would they do a vet check on your horse only at horse stations or when you pull up for the day as well? They'll come check on you. So we've each got a spot tracker. Oh, okay. Yeah. So how many vets do they need then? Because 40, I mean, I know most people were riding in groups, but imagine if everybody went off on their own. Yeah, I was going to say six or eight. I thought running around all over the countryside. Well, it wasn't always a vet that would come and see you, one of the vet. Uh, one of the event organisers might have come and seen you. Yeah. And they can check heart rates as well. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, they just come and make sure that you're safe and horses are safe and all that. So tell me about some of the other things that happened on the race. I know you said you got sick, but that was towards the end of the race, was it? Day six. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, So the race is, it's, it's such a race of extremes. Like Jess was saying, you know, she was frozen. What day was that? Day four. Day four. Yeah. So I think it was day three. That was that stretch up that big road, you know, that just like never ended. And this was just like the most boring stretch of country. Like literally there was dirt, tiny tufts of grass and just heaps of goats. And that was it for like, it was just a really boring stretch. Like there's really beautiful areas in Mongolia. That was not one of them. And it was hot to like 38 degrees and just no shade, no wind. And even, you know, coming from Darwin where I thought I'm pretty good with the heat, like I was proper hot. And just because when you when it's boring, and we were on slow horses too, so it was boring. We we're on slow horses. It was hot, like it was just a trifecta, just a giant pity party for ages. Anyway, that day was hot, hot, hot. The next day, it started raining pretty early in the morning, and that day, like by the end of that day, I ended up getting pulled up for hypothermia. I had lost all feelings in my fingers. I was soaked through to the bone, and. You know, that was 24 hours in between and, and everyone on that race would have had that same story just at different times. So it's the, the extremity of, of what that race throws at you and how quickly everything just changes and not only the weather, but the country that, you know, that next day when it had rained all day, like we found ourselves on the wrong side of a river crossing and, you know, we were trying to work out how to cross this river. And I, you know, the race before us, there were three girls that had gone in the river on day one. Was it day one? Yeah, and lost their saddles, their stirrups, their horses, the whole nine yards. And so I was like, righto, well, we need to pick a really good spot. <laughs> um, anyway, we ended up having a herder. Like he saw us sort of, you know, faffing about up and down this creek and it's marshy too. So the horses are sinking. So all this time you're thinking the horses are getting tired. I'm freezing in this train. I'm on the wrong side of this godforsaken river. There's nowhere here that looks safe to cross. Anyway, and this herder ends up coming up on the other side on his motorbike just out of nowhere like some, I don't know, saint from the sky. And he's sort of like hustling us down, waving us down, waving us down. And he like points to this one section full of rocks and they're like covered in green moss and everything in my head is like, that's going to be so slippery. <laughs> and I was like, right, well, we've got no, we've got no choice or else we're going to have to double back. And we're, if we double back, we'll, we won't be anywhere near where we need to be. We're already behind anyway. So end up crossing this river and getting across and, and then, you know, they end up having a really good leg to the next station being relatively straightforward. But, you know, had we not had run, in, run into that guy, would have been stuck on the other side of that river for like, I don't know, days. Got off, had a tantrum, but got there in the end. <laughs> yeah. And so did you say you had a hyper or hypothermia? 
Yeah, but but that was the same day where you were saying it was like 38 degrees. The and- day before that, yeah, had been like, like one of the English girls from – she wasn't riding with us, but she ended up pulling out on that day because she got so burnt and so hot. Um, that was M. I had she like I saw her on day five or something, and her lips were like enormous and peeling and like third degree sunburn, like, and that was that was the day before. So, yeah, it's just. And then so the next day, so did you have to pull out of the race as well? I didn't on that day. No, like we were absolutely saturated and got to this girl, and um, we were just so cold and so wet, and we but we'd made relatively good time, and the. Uh, you know, we they basically they said to us, if you if you want to keep riding, you can, but you just need to like similar to I just was saying before, you just need to go into that girl and warm up for a bit, uh, and that had been a really hard day, you know. And I think by day they say that day three, two, like two, three, and four are probably the hardest, and then you kind of you know you just get on with the job that that you've got to do. And I know I would agree with that. I think day three and four were really hard, um, and we were just so cold and we were so wet, like just. So wet, hey, like to your bones wet. And, yeah, and anyway, so we ended up riding out and that was, that ended up being probably one of my favourite afternoons actually when all three of us were like, no, nah, we've got three hours to get to this next station. We can definitely do it. And the gods sort of shined upon us. We got three really good horses and we made it out to that next station. And I think that was a real emotional um overcome for me that moment where we were so cold so wet like we were sitting around this fire and we're all like trying to warm ourselves my hands are completely like completely wrinkly the the medic's there touching my fingers he's like can you feel that and I was like oh if I say no are you gonna let me ride again and I was like not really and I had fingerless gloves so he was like well we either need to tape your fingers before you go out and one of the American girls she had she had been pulled from the race that day and she ended up giving me her gloves to ride with which was really good because the the reins and the, the goat rein are made of, yeah, a rawhide. So once they get wet, not only are they wet and slippery, but because you've got to hold them the whole time, it's like you're just, you know, holding a wet sponge whilst you're riding in torrential rain anyway. And it's just, just compounds that the moisture in your skin. So, so that was day four, I think. So, and then, so day three was the hot day. Day four was the rain, the real rainy day. Day five was. Not a flash day. We got one of the girls I was riding with. She, she ended up having a horse that just was no good, and it sort of looked like it was colicking halfway through. And by this stage, we'd ridden five days together, so I was like, "Oh well, Meredith, one's in, one in, all in, mate." You know, at this point of the game, like, whatever, I'll walk with you. So that took us five hours to get to the next station because we thought her horse was colicking, and it wasn't. It was just fat and unfit and rubbish. And anyway, then that night we got into horse station fifteen. I think it was. And anyway, I had a couple of good horses for the last bit of that day. And then that night I woke up at like 2 a.m. And I, you know, that feeling when you know you're going to vomit and your whole body is just like it's shivery, it's shaky, your mouth is salivary, you're unwell, you're just like, oh, I'm no good. Like, I'm no good. And anyway, and so you sort of, I jumped out of the girl and everyone's like, there's six or seven of us in this tiny girl and you sort of jump over in the middle of the night, got out, only got out probably two feet outside the back of the girl as far as I could and just threw up. And yeah, I threw up, threw up all morning. And it was just like that horridly violent vomiting from like the very bottom of your stomach where your body is basically having an exorcism of anything oh. you have eaten. Oh, or and then you and have like a sip of water and the bile keeps going. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that one. And so anyway, by this stage though, we were only like the organisers said we were only an hour and a half behind the last – group of people so you know if Meredith and I would been continually chasing the back of the pack 
because we'd both had that penalty early and just not had a real run of flash luck. And then so by the time we got to that morning, it was like I'd been sick and Meredith's like, man, you don't look good. And I was like, no, it's fine. So I took an anti-nausea tablet, I had the little soluble ones that we'd packed with us. But, like, I was green, you know, like where other mornings we'd been really specific about what horse we were going to pick and, you know, you'd look down the horse line like I was like, no, I don't care. Like, I just need a horse that in case it starts to come out the other end, I can get off. <laughs> you know, and that was like the only priority at that stage. And because we'd heard that other people had been getting quite sick and it is sort of like a, a guardia type response. So, you know, you didn't know whether you were vomiting or the other way and – Anyway, and I was like, mate, that would really ruin my day if I was to shit myself on this horse. So <laughs> I just want to be able to get off it, you know. That was sort of like the only priority I had. It's like I'm running real lean on underwear, so this is not an option for me. Do you pack toilet paper as well on your horse? Like <laughs> yeah. you'd be you'd be pretty like have slim pickings. Provided it didn't get wet. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so you sort of like slip it into your pocket or like tissue or toilet paper and then like – you know, if it had rained, you'd pull it out your pocket and there's like a little pond in each of your pockets and you're like, oh, my $1,000 waterproof jacket sucks. Or like you'd put it into your jods of your pocket but then because it was hot and you'd sweat, you'd just like pull it out and it'd just be like, oh, okay, cool, excellent. And anyway, so that morning like I I just had to use all my energy and I was like, no, I'm still going to do it. I'm going to be right. Like I'll come good. But having – I just couldn't keep anything down. And so I, I got on this horse and Meredith was still riding with me and she's like, come on, mate. Yep, you're right. You've got it. And I was like, yep, yep, I've got it. And just like you said before, like I took a sip out of my – like my bladder pack and like I'd have a bit of water and I'd put two hydrolite in there and it'd sit, go into my stomach and then I was just like holding onto the cantle of this horse. And lucky he was a good honest horse and he sort of just, you know, we'd run sort of, you know, he'd go for about a K or two and then I would just have to stop and just walk along. And I was riding this horse like a sack of potatoes. Honestly, it would have been, I feel sorry for that horse. Like I was the most rubbish rider that day. I just flopped on and just held and just like drink my water and then just lean off the, lean off the side and just vomit up that tiny bit of water and so about two k's out from that station um meredith had actually messaged the medic like through the spot tracker she's like yeah natalie's no good and because he'd seen me that morning and i was like i just got to avoid the medic i just got to ride and you know if i can get to the next station then i'll be all right and by the time he got me off the horse like i you know it was really delirious in terms of like my vision like my whole body had cramped up because i was so dehydrated and sore and um and yeah and he just said to me you are not getting you're not going anywhere near a horse for the rest of the day and as a result, that was when I was pulled from the race. So I didn't, I wasn't allowed to ride for a day and a half. And then, yeah, I was allowed to ride for the rest of the race, but obviously out of the race competitively from that point. So that was pretty heartbreaking too, because I thought I'd be able to come good and I just couldn't. So, so when you were able to get back on a horse, did you? Yeah. To try and finish the race? Yeah. I did. Just not, just, yeah, not competitively. Yeah, I did, and we rode 500 metres out of a horse station and the girl I was riding with had a similar experience to Jess, like her horse just shot off and uh, fell down a mum hole, it 360 flipped on her and um, we ended up having to get her medi, like she ended up having to be in a stretcher with a neck brace because she sprained, they thought, they didn't know if she'd like broken her, her neck but ended up being a real bad sprain. So, yeah, that was day seven, like three hours waiting in the scrub, waiting <laughs> for her to get picked up and... Yeah, and then day eight we rode again and day nine and day ten. So actually, no, day nine was a really big rainy day, so day ten we rode. How – I mean, it sounds really silly to ask you, like, how did that feel? But, yeah, you you work for – you know, you had this idea since 2019. You don't get to ride until 2022. You've had all the training and preparation and then you get just over halfway and 
again, this this thing of being not within your control. Like on day one, everything was out of your control, and then on day six, again, out of your control, and you um you have to leave the race. Like that's is gut wrenching, you know. And it was like I was so so melancholy about the whole thing, and and you know, I like I said, you we'd put in all of this training and preparation, and um, you know it. I just felt like I, I didn't get to race the race that I wanted to have and I felt like it was ripped away from me from all the wrong reasons and that I, you know, I was proud of myself that I, I never gave up and I pushed myself to, you know, the absolute breaking point of illness and sickness and, you know, had had I been really crook, say, early in the night and then been able to have some sleep or get over it, then the next day I might have been right. It just was really sucky timing that I was so sick so early in the day and then wasn't afforded any time to be able to recover from that and I just had to keep going and then so yeah it just it it sucked like it was so hard to deal with not being able to to finish the race in the same way that I thought I was going to be able to so if there's if you're only allotted 10 days to to cover that distance and reach the end point and obviously you've had a few setbacks and you're behind and especially with a, a day and a half setback when you were able to get back on a horse and you were riding non-competitively, were you still able to reach the finish line when the race, when the 10 days were up or did they let you go a few more days until you finished it or did you have to pull up on day 10 wherever you were no matter what? Yeah, pretty much. So on day 10 um, they took us to the to the last second last horse station and we were able to ride from there. But it, we, yeah, the race packs up and, the you know, all of the, the temporary facility, like the GERS and those sorts of things and the families that are set up for the race, like they'll often pack up and move by then as well because they're sort of getting closer into winter. So it's, um, yeah, we, we had to finish on day 10. We weren't afforded any any kind of opportunity to ride for longer or shorter. What was it like crossing the finish line knowing that that wasn't how you wanted to do it, like, and that you had, I guess, missed a, a big leg of the race and been brought forward to the second last horse station? So, yeah, you crossed the finish line like everyone else. But, again, it just sounds like play hell, like almost like the trip from hell, but I know it would have been an amazing experience. No, but, no, it was the trip from hell. But, sure. <laughs> but it just was all out of your control and just so, I mean, not what you'd planned and – I don't know how you salvage it and yeah, that just Yeah, it was. It was really hard. And I think like it definitely took me a long time. Um that that was the hardest thing of it. It was it was the disappointment factor of not getting to race the race that I wanted to or that I thought that I had worked hard enough to be able to have. And you know, it's not like we had any aspirations of, of winning it, but definitely finishing it on a, on your own merit was, you know, high priority. And I was just dealt some really shitty cards at the start of the race and unfortunately was not able to bring that back and um, yeah, that was hard, you know, and I think generally in life, like you have, well, for me personally, like whatever I decide I'm going to do, you know, I will generally do reasonably well out, not, not for any real outstanding stellar ability or brains or anything else like that, but because you put a plan in place, you work really hard, you, you put in, you put in the, the effort and time and process that you need to achieve an end goal because that's, you know, you know that there's steps to achieve that. And with Mongolia, that was just not the case at all. Did it change how you rode, like when you got back on in the non-competitive leg of the race? You know, like beforehand, like you've still got that chance of finishing on your own terms, like you said, mm. um, but certainly not winning, finishing, and then now you're like probably not even able to finish. Does it kind of – did you find it hard to stay motivated or get that enthusiasm and have that drive, like that fire in your belly to be like, yeah, I'm going to ride hard today and catch up, you know, finish when you know that that's no longer an option? 
Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I just I was a bit more, you know, had a bit more self preservation about me on the when you know you're not competitive, you pick a horse that's going to be safe and it's going to get you there. And you know, whilst the day before that, like I'd picked a horse off a horse line that was hobbled and that they couldn't even get near because I just wanted to have a horse that I thought would go and you know not be slow. Um, you know, the self preservation wasn't key. During the race, I don't reckon when you picked a horse, as long as it wasn't going to kill you, you're like, yeah, no worries, give me some curry because that means you might get me there quicker. Um, whilst, you know, on day seven and eight, I was like, yeah, nah, I'm happy to just, you know, I just want something that's going to go, but I don't want to fight it for 40Ks either. What about you, Jess? What happened on the rest of your journey? Did you also get sick? I did. So on day six... Uh, we Will and I were still riding together and Will had been cooked that morning um, and we decided there was a fellow from um, Israel and he was a fighter pilot or something like that and we thought, let's follow this bloke. Surely he's got to be good at navigating. We followed him all the way around the biggest mountain you could ever see and we should have just went straight over the top but turned out that uh, Will was crook. Um, and didn't realise until we were at the top of the hill when I was like, we need to cross this hill at some point, we can't keep going around. Um, got to the top of the hill and he's had to pull up and jump off and have a little spew over the side of the mountain. And um, I was like, oh, I've got an anti-noisy tablet there, got it out for him, he had that, no worries, off we went again, sort of started coming good. And then we got to the next horse station and they were talking about this sickness and actually, well, I can't remember whether it was the next one. It might have been the next one after that. And, yeah, talking about this sickness that was going around. And, like, oh, we were right. Will was a bit crook this morning, but, no, we were right. And um, I got 10Ks out and it hit me like a brick. Um, the horse I was riding, they had to lug it. Yeah, we were sort of trotting along and Will's looked over at me and he's like, geez, you look like shit, Jess. I'm like, I can feel like shit. He goes, well, you still got some of them tablets, so I didn't pull up and have one of them. And I said, I can't get off this horse. He's like, oh, well, I'll get off and I'll hold your horse and you can get off and get your tablet and we'll keep going, basically. Um, so that all went well. Jumped off and grabbed my tablet, put that on my tongue, a little dissolvable thing that's supposed to work really good, and it did while we were in Mongolia and I was hungover for margaritas. <laughs> but it tasted like acid. It did not go down right. Um, I basically sat on the ground and I couldn't move. And, yeah, Will's there. There's not a tree in sight. Um, sun's beating down. It's like 4.30 in the afternoon, so fairly tropical. And put the horses in front of me to try and give me a little bit of shade. And then the only thing that really got me moving is she was coming out the other end. <laughs> I was like, oh, time to go. So I got up and headed up the hill a little bit. And by this stage, we'd already waited a little while. Um, for the medic to come, and the medic finally turned up and she said to Will, where's Jess? Oh, she's just up, up the hill there a just little bit. composting the trees. <laughs> she goes, what'd you, what'd you leave her up there? It's like, no, 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 she's she's doing a business. Like, <laughs> poor buggy. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Anyway, <laughs> we'd ridden for so far together. He was just like, it was, was good that he stayed Stayed with me. Um, and then once the medics come, sort of, they, they said, oh, we'll lay you down for half an hour and give you some hydrolyte and all this other stuff, and which took a lot to get down. And um, I held it down for a period of time, but I still couldn't get my head up off the ground pretty much. Um, and so made the decision to go back the 10Ks because you can always go back, um, be carried back, but you can't be carried forward. 
So I was carried back and so I was still meant I was still in the race and I could deal with that. Um, there was a girl right close there, but I didn't really want to go and spread my sickness around a little bit more. Um, so yeah, I ended up going back to horse station 17, um, relieved myself a little bit more, had a spew, had a swim in the river that was right close there, half a beer and I started coming good. Um, and yeah, that's when, when I come across Natalie and, found out that she was quite sick and uh, had been pulled from the race, which is quite quite sad. But you guys got to see each other before the race ended, though. That's kind of like a magical reunion. Yeah, like Natalie in the fetal position on the ground, and I was like, hi, (laughs) patting (laughs) from a distance. (laughs) But your sickness didn't get you pulled from the race? No, I I never got pulled from the race. I finished the race. Very lucky. When you're, I guess this is for both of you guys, when you're riding in the race, so a lot of the days cantering, galloping, I guess a bit of trotting and walking, and you're spending time, so you ended up both with different people, not who you'd wanted to ride with, but did you end up, when you spend that much time with someone, is there time for talking? Like it's kind of hard to canter and talk or gallop and talk. Honestly, I'm so unfit, trotting and talking is a bit hard. But, I mean, <laughs> you're, spending, you're spending like, you know, these 10 days, I guess, riding with Will, like are you guys pretty good buddies now or same with you and your friends um, the, the girls that you had, like, do you form bonds? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So, like, the, the two Kiwi fellas, uh, Hugh and Will, uh, Hugh and Ben, they're, they're brothers. They were the fellas that I rode out of the first horse station with and, and I rode with them until went us up in the hole. Made great friends with them and, and Will as well. Um, and it turns out, like, with Will, he's, he's from Australia, he, he's a helicopter pilot. Uh, it's not a, not a very big, country <laughs> when it comes to it everyone knows everyone um so we had mutual friends and all that sort of stuff and then and like yeah with you and ben we're just talking about life and you know families and why we were doing it and there was plenty of time for talking and then obviously when you stop at a horse station or, or a camp or whatever you sort of get to pe- know people very well and um yeah obviously i lost all three of those followers that i rode quite a few hours with um by the time I finished, and I ended up finish with him, finishing with a girl. She's American, but um, lives in the UK. Um, she was not the first, my first pick of people to ride with. Uh, I didn't really think much of her, poor bugger, right at the start. But by the time I finished riding with her for three days, and she's she's awesome, like a great person, and and yeah, Brit, she's yeah. I'm glad that I finished with. I couldn't ask for a better person to finish with um, in the end. But, yeah, crossing that finish line with Brit was awesome. Um, but then meeting up with them, three followers at the end. And uh, so Hugh sort of didn't go much into that little conversation about chasing a horse um, right at the start. That was Hugh's horse that I was chasing across the flat trying to get back so it didn't get lost for too long. And so we obviously made great friends and um yeah Hugh come up to me with tears in his eyes and I was like shit mate you're right like what happened and then I realized that it was because I finished and you know I was still in a race and I was like oh Jesus you know this is unreal like the bond you make with people and then obviously watching well Sarah the other Aussie Sheila that we made friends with through the endurance stuff um watching her finish and then Natalie coming across the line it was yeah pretty pretty specky. It sounds more honestly, the more you guys talk about this experience, like I was thinking of some kind of, you know, fun adventure thing, it kind of sounds like 
The Hunger Games, really. Have, yeah. have you guys seen that movie? Because that's what this is sound. And it also just sounds like a Bear Grylls survival thing. Like, to me, it should be like the Mongol survival, I don't know, Hunger Games. Like the Mongol <laughs> Games, not the Mongol Derby. Like, it just kind of sounds like you're out there, you're trying to, you're all, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's like nothing I've ever done before. Like, nothing I'll ever do again, I guarantee you. But, no, it's... It's unreal and, and like we were saying before, there, there's a thousand different stories. No two people will ever have the same story from that race or the same experience. There's so many variables. There's so many unknowns. The, the relationship you form with people that you, you've never even met before, it's this strange um, closeness and I guess a shared um, commitment around what you, you were both looking for from, from the race and then, you know, you sort of just fall into uh, these, yeah, really close almost codependent type relationships when you're there because it is literally just you, the person you, that you might be riding with, your horses, and, and that's it. It's pretty much it. And, yeah, you know, you're relying on each other to to navigate or to help each other get on and off the horse or to, um, yeah, you know, get your jacket off because you might have left and it was, you know, 18 degrees or, or 16 degrees and then it's two hours into your race and it's closer to 30 degrees and you're hot and, you know, you can't – some of the horses you could you – could, you know, fairly well move about on and other horses you just sat as still as you could and held on because they were like a little explosion waiting to happen and, yeah, so. I know we've spoken about your preparation for the race in terms of training and then obviously we've covered the race but before we wrap up, there's one other aspect of preparing for the race that we need to discuss and that is the cost and the fundraising involved, the, also the charities you raise money for. Like this isn't just like a kind of contiki book you'd, you holiday and go on, woo, have fun. Like there was, and yeah, there's a lot in it, not just from getting mentally and physically fit and prepared, but actually funding this trip. So for anyone that's thinking about doing this like ballpark, I mean, what, what did you have to try and what kind of money did you have to try and come up with? We had uh, spent every bit of 30 yeah. odd grand each. 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 Yeah. Um, oh so God. the race itself just to uh, enter the race is 14 and a half grand US. And then everything that goes in with training and getting gear and testing gear and changing gear out and then flights and hotels and food and, like, and you know, there's so many things that go behind it. So I know – so the, the girls that you stayed at, that was just like luck of the draw, whoever would take you in. But if you made it to a horse station that night, did the derby feed you? Oh, the, the herd of families fed us. But, but like if you like, but that was. It's included in the, in the entry fee. Yeah. Oh, okay. So no matter what, like no matter what random family you pulled up at, if they're willing to have you, they fed you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They still fed us, but like the. But did you get like a better feed if you pulled up at a horse station for the night? Not necessarily. It was all fairly similar. Okay. Yeah. Like I don't think I'm eating lamb or goat or mutton for the foreseeable future. I actually got goat out this morning, was going to cook goat roast for you, and then I was like, hang on, no, it's Natalie. Yeah. I was going to say, I've got a a whole (laughs) lamb in the freezer if you want it. I've got some lamb in the fridge I need to get rid of. I'm still a bit shy on it, even at the butcher shop now. I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) You know, when you've been real sick and then that's the food smell and Mm. at that horse station they put me in when I was real crook. That was at 17. Do you remember that? You walked into this girl and I sort of just laid down, just like – crawled into this girl, laid down face down. I was like, oh, man, it's extra lamby in here. And I'm like, maybe I'm sick. I'm like, rolled over and they had just killed this lamb. 
And honestly, there was just like a whole lamb hanging in the rafters of this girl. And, you know, it's that smell, that real pungent, meaty fat. I was like, oh. Yeah, they were, they were, <sighs> they were more like old weathers. They yeah. weren't lambs at all. They were, they, they were yeah. 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 It, it was not flash. As a result, uh, yeah, not not eating much lamb these okay. days. So your, your 30 grand all, certainly all didn't go towards the, no. the diet. No. What, I mean, I know the community, you were, you managed to drum up a fair bit of support. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Because I know there's a lot of people that you guys, I mean, yeah. I suppose this, it's probably hard to thank people individually because there'd be so many, but what were some of the standout things that the community did for you guys? To list everyone, it would be, yeah. A whole other episode probably. Yeah, that's right. And um, the community backing, not just the Catherine community or the Darwin community individually, but the whole Northern Territory community was just unbelievable. Mm. Um, so we um, were lucky enough to be donated a bull um, and then managed to get it into the Ponderosa bull sale and had help from elders to be able to sell him and, and put him through and made really good money for it for him um and so obviously it cost us nothing to go to to have the bull to get him in there well, a couple of bags of feed which my business donated anyway um but got him through really great money that was awesome um that was quite a big highlight and then um we had a trivia night down here in Catherine that was great as well everyone got behind it we had great fun good laugh people donated prizes and it was really good and then uh one of Natalie's Close friends uh, put on a movie night for us. That was awesome. Which I'll let Natalie explain. Yeah, so he's got a um, uh, like a prime mover and a trailer, and he's got like a um, outdoor projection. So he did a whole big outdoor movie setup for us on on a truck out at Fred's Pass Reserve, and you know he, he played that movie um, Ride Like a Girl. Oh, um, yes. and it was an opportunity to, so yeah, so people bought movie tickets to that. And, and, you know, that's like a, one of just the many examples, but you know, like the guys from Arafia Pest Control donated, they sprayed for the midges. Fred Pass gave us the grounds for free. Shane from Northern Lights did all the cinematography stuff for us. Like, you know, that Jess was saying with the bull. So like anything that we said we wanted to do, everyone just got behind it. And, you know, when we picked up poles at the show jumping with the show jumping club, um, you know, we had mates come down and, you know, mates that know nothing about horses, mates that uh, don't enjoy the outdoors, you know, and they'd come down for three hours and pick up poles and move things around and they bought, you know, we got some hats and shirts done and people bought hats and people bought shirts. Sorry to everyone, I haven't delivered your shirt to yet. I'm trying. Um, yeah, it's, you know, like the, the response to it was phenomenal and I think it was a real reminder of the special place that is the Territory and, you know, where perhaps down south or internationally a people were sort of, you know, one of a number of of anybody's, like people really, they were so encouraging and so supportive and they bought raffle tickets and merchandise and they attended our events and they, you know, tuned into every radio station at, or every TV interview that we did and they shared our stuff and they liked our stuff and they followed our journey when we were there and I think, you know, it was a really important reminder for me about how special the Territory is, about how incredible um, my family and friends are and, you know, like wherever Jess and I went, we were just made to feel so welcome and so encouraged and people were so um, – they were so willing to offer inspiration and encouragement. It was It was honestly the most humbling thing and probably for me the journey to Mongolia – 
was uh, it was probably more enjoyable than the time in Mongolia. Um, but no, it just you know, like Jess and I went on some. We just made such an effort to do things and train, and you know, we rode two pretty young horses from the college to to Jess's parents' place, and that was its whole adventure, like with you know, big trucks full of Polly coming along, and these two young horses uh, <laughs> skipping down the side of the road. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, and yeah, and then there was the endurance ride, so we did we did two down south, and so we, yeah, we just we made a real journey of it, and we were as a part of our trip over there, Jess and I. Um, wanted to raise money for soccer to sarcoma. So we lost a, a really close friend of ours in 2017, just 27 years old. She died from a really rare type of cancer after fighting it for six years. Um, so for us, it was a way of not only, you know, being able to talk about Stevie in all different mechanisms and, and sort of keeping her name and her memory and who she was alive, but it's a way for us to be able to contribute to a charity that she did a lot of work for um, before she passed away. Um, and, yeah, so we... Uh, have just this week done the transfer and we've turned it donated ten thousand dollars to soccer to sarcoma which is pretty phenomenal yeah it was it's awesome the, yeah the amount of backing we got was just unbelievable that's going to feel pretty good as well to be able to donate that amount of money like that'll make a huge that's a huge contribution yeah definitely yeah it's unreal so yeah there's it it was mongolia was you know equally the most challenging and difficult thing we've ever done. I think we can both say that um, probably more emotionally than physically um, for all the reasons that we've spoken about here. But it was also, you know, it was in, it was incredibly humbling, not only the lead up to it, but Mongolia just humbles you as well, takes away any arrogance or ego or any confidence you might punch. have. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think it also makes you appreciate what you have, it also makes you it, – it does make you a bit tough. You know, it also – you realise what you've got and what, you you know, what you're actually made of, which I think for me was sort of one of the the motivations going over there, you know, like how often do you really push yourself to the point where, you know, you how, – how often do you push yourself to the point where you actually know what you're made of? And that was probably a motivation for me going over there. So before I hit you guys with my last question, I just want to go back to a little bit earlier in this episode where you started to tell a story, Jess, and you're like, oh, no, that's one for, for later in the episode. So um, don't hold back. Um, yeah, so basically aside from the mental side of, you know, the mental challenge of the whole race and um, all the excitement and the, uh, the sickness and everything else that went down, I actually – when I had time to come home and process it, I found I decided that it wasn't actually that hard of a race. Um, definitely for somebody that's used to doing hard days or long days, um, it was it, it sort of when I really thought about it, I just made it another job. Um, so when we f- when I finished, it went across the finish line, and I had first beer within about two minutes of getting off. Um, and then, you know, had a couple more and then went and got in the shower and cleaned myself up and then we all sat around waited for everyone else to finish and then obviously there's a, the finish party. Um, a lot went down. There was a lot of fun, a lot of partying, a lot of dancing, lots of vodka drank. Um, and so I, I did have a couple of sort of injuries along the way with my knees and my ankles, um, not holding up all that great, but realistically it was, it was nothing 
too bad. Um, but I decided to wrestle with one of the medics during sometime during the night and we both went down and I headbutted a table uh, and split my cheek open and my chin open. Um, and, I mean, there's blood going everywhere and there was all sorts of interesting things, but I didn't actually feel it. I thought I was fine and was ready to go again. Um, and then, yeah, one of the other medics come and grabbed me and took me away, patched me up, and I come back and that very same medic pulled my plaster off because she's like, what's that on your face? And pulled it off and blood went everywhere again. And then one of the vets come and got me and he's like, yes, you need to go back to the medic. I'm like, no, I'm right, right, right. Let's keep going. He's like, no, you need to go back to the medic. <laughs> so obviously I woke up the next morning and a fair few people had already gone to bed by the stage this had happened. Um, and so I walked out of the girl and there's like blood all down my face and a plaster and trying to walk across the toilet and freezing cold. Um, <laughs> everyone's looking at me like, what the hell, Jessica? What have you done? <laughs> I was like, just uh, going out in true Jessica style. For those that know me. <laughs> yeah, classic Jess gets more busted at the after party than 10 days on a horse. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Your most traumatic injury and it had nothing to do with the race or a horse at all. Not involved. Okay. Well, I appreciate all the time you guys are given today, but I do have to ask you a question. And it's not the question I usually ask at the end of an episode. What's next? Where do you go from here? Do you, is this, especially for you now, is this something that you want to do again until you get to finish on your terms or can you kind of be at peace with it and choose another challenge? Oh, I'd be lying if I said I was at peace with it. Um, you know, I think it's probably the nature of anyone that does this sort of race. You do have an element of, of competitiveness in you and, you know, you, you've got a goal and you, you want to get there and you want to get it done. Um, but to do it again would probably only be driven by ego nothing else to be honest um you know there was a girl that raced in the 2019 race she came back to do it in 2022 and she got pneumonia on day four and i think that was probably the the reminder for me that is you know to go back and do it again doesn't mean that i would have any different i'd have a different experience but i don't know that i'd have a different outcome and you know would i find peace from that and then i would have spent another 30 grand which is probably better invested elsewhere with today's interest rates um so yeah i, I don't think for me, like if I was, I would, I'm definitely keen to do more horse adventures, like, you know, through, through this connect, through the race and the connections we've made. Like, um, one of the ladies who I spent a bit of time with, Alice, she's based in the UK. She does, uh, all sorts of adventures and tours. She's just done a big horse riding trip in Egypt. Um, and that looked phenomenal. So yeah, I think, you know, definitely keen on doing more types of adventures. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what's next. I think going away and doing it probably got a bit out of my system in terms of where I was at and why I wanted to do it. And, you know, uh, coming back, I've realised, you know, I've got a, I've got a really, really busy, full, great life and there's so many things here that I need to progress personally, professionally, um, you know. So I think, yeah, my my focus will definitely be on on doing a really great job of the things I've, I've got on my plate at the moment, I think. And Jess? I did look into the 500-mile Patagonia race at the Adventurist um, do, but it's – a little bit more money <laughs> but yeah I really want to go back to Mongolia I made some really good contacts with the herders over there um, and have been invited back to go and jump on a horse whenever I want basically so it'd be really great to get the family together and and go over there and show them around and 
and do a bit of that. But um, in terms of doing the race again, I'm not really that interested, maybe down the track, but at the moment I'm sort of at the point where I can't recreate the experience I had and the people that I met and the horses I rode and everything that went along with it, and I don't really want to at this point. So, yeah, we'll see. I've got a lot going on, so. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so for the final question now, looking back on this experience, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? If you want to push yourself and challenge yourself or you find there's something that is a little bit outside your comfort zone and you're unsure whether you should do it or not, just do it. Just have a go. doesn't matter what it is, whether it's something easy or something, I don't know, costs a lot of money or doesn't cost a lot of money or just whatever, just do it. If, 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 that's, if you think that it's going to better you or make a difference to someone else, then do it. Yeah, the, the biggest life lesson learned is that nothing that says it's waterproof is, in fact, waterproof. But on a serious note, you know, it's probably a bit holistic, but I think – you know, when when you're driven by a purpose, everything seems to come together. Um, you know, like I don't reckon Jess and I could have got any busier if we tried, you know, we couldn't have jam-packed anything more in. Like we were travelling, you know, back to and from Darwin almost every week, if not every fortnight, like either to do fundraising or to do training or to go for a horse ride or to fly somewhere to ride. Or, um, But I felt like in the lead-up to Mongolia, like everything was this precarious but really well-managed balance of, of fitness and friendship and, you know, purpose. And I think, yeah, I, I came back I think almost a little bit lost when – after Mongolia around like, you know, I wasn't searching for a what's next, but I felt like that sort of North Star, which had been the guiding decision-making principle around, you know, what I'd done that year, what I'd worked towards, you know, everything that we had been um, collectively trying to achieve and work towards and, and, and get to was gone and it was done and it left a big gap, I think, in a way. Um, so that probably took some some time to get used to again. So, yeah, it, it was an incredible experience. The journey to Mongolia was was just as probably profound for me as the time there. It challenged me. I, you know, we we opted for the world's toughest and, and longest horse race, and and we definitely got it. 